Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we meet three scientists who've created a board game inspired by the science done at the UK's Diamond Synchrotron. And we chat with an engineer who uses concentrated solar thermal energy to roast green chilies. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by GNBKL Group, a world-class manufacturer of vacuum hardware, including chambers, valves, and components. Make sure you watch their online game show, Will It Bloat?, where they place everyday objects, such as a hot dog, a chocolate Easter bunny, and even an air cylinder into a vacuum chamber to see if they bloat. You can watch America's favorite vacuum show at www.vacuumchamber.com. Fans of Mexican, and indeed New Mexican food, will no doubt be familiar with the wonderful taste and smell of roasted chili. My colleague Margaret Harris has been speaking to a researcher who's found a greener and more environmentally friendly way of producing this essential ingredient. I'm speaking with Ken Armijo, an engineer at Sandia National Laboratories in New Mexico, whose day job is at Sandia's National Solar Thermal Test Facility. Hello, Ken. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. What's the National Solar Thermal Test Facility look like? Yeah, it's a good question. So the NSTTF, as we call it, um, comprises a very large, over 200 foot foot tall solar tower and over 218 heliostats. And in addition to the solar tower um, laboratory, if you will, we also have a large solar furnace um, where you have a giant heliostat and a large dish mirror that we can uh, heat um, materials up to temperatures of over 3000 degrees Celsius. We have solar simulators, rotating platforms. We have a lot of um, uh, different laboratories that all comprise the NSTTF, where we do concentrating solar thermal uh, and concentrating solar power research. Uh, We have a lot of test loops for supercritical carbon dioxide research. And when you come here, you'll see a lot of mirrors. And all those mirrors are used for increasing the concentration ratios for getting to high temperatures, which can lead to high-performance energy process systems. So the idea behind solar thermal energy is to concentrate the heat from the sun's rays and use it to generate electricity and drive industrial processes. That's correct. Yeah. So I do a lot of research involving high temperature fluids uh, for energy and power generation and concentrating solar power instead of traditional photovoltaics or PV panels that you might buy at like Home Depot or other stores where light comes in, light energy comes in, electricity goes out. uh, We reflect light 
off the entire spectrum off of these mirrors or systems called heliostats, where you have a mirror assembly that rotates in azimuth and elevation, reflects light onto a receiver that has a working fluid. In uh, fossil energy, you combust some um, um, fossil products in order to heat, uh, create that heat to heat up a working fluid uh, in order to turn a turbine and a generator and make electricity. Our case, we heat up molten salts or fluidized particles that we can actually store of up to 16 hours. So best lithium-ion batteries on the market are about four to five hours at best. Here we go much longer duration. Um, and so that's that's kind of the main focus of my research in the energy area. I also do re-entry vehicle uh, studies on new materials for aerospace applications as well. But one of the things that always caught uh, my attention was there's also industrial process heat applications. So, for example, at Sandia, we do research not just to make electricity with concentrating solar energy, but we also use that energy to make things like hydrogen or ammonia or uh, tra basically transportation fuels. But you've actually found an alternative application, which is to use the heat to roast one of New Mexico's favorite foods, which is green chili. For the benefit of listeners who haven't been to New Mexico or eaten green chili, you know, what is green chili and, and why is it so important for New Mexicans? So green chili is a type of pepper. Um, capsicum anum is the kind of the scientific term for it. Um, but it's uh, it's a pepper that's relatively long, call it like four to six inches. Uh, it's used in a variety of uh, culinary type foods uh, for New Mexicans. Um, a lot of uh, people make it for enchiladas, for tacos and a variety of other things. And the peppers themselves are native to this part uh, and this region of the United States and Mexico and have been for centuries. Uh, Native Americans use chili peppers. Uh, uh, New Mexicans uh, use peppers for a long time. My family's been roasting chili peppers for decades, if not at least a century. And uh, in fact, uh, my grandfather and great grandfather had chili seeds that they've been passing down. So we actually grow an heirloom variety. And that's this is my weekend job with my family. Uh, I'd say it's ingrained in our DNA uh, to the point where I like my family's been growing it for a long time. I tell people my blood types red chili because we've been growing it for so long. And so uh, it's part of our culture. I mean, there's been disputes of like who's uh, the chili capital of the world and New Mexico and Albuquerque tends to really push uh, for that. I also understand that the New Mexico state question is, is red or green, as in would you want red or green chili on your, your, your dish? That's right. That's a very important question. But for those that like holidays, Christmas is always a good answer. <laughs> Red and green combined. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, so I understand that the chili is usually roasted using propane. You want to describe that process and what sort of impact it has on the environment? Sure. So propane roasting um, typically is facilitated by having a number of burners, call it anywhere from three to eight burners on a particular large drum. So you can have this drum. Uh, it's um, made with a mesh screen that you can put the peppers in. It rotates um, 
and uh, the burners are locally heating the drum uh, at just one spot. So you have the bulk chili that's rotating and constantly being uh, kind of cycled through uh, where the burners are into the large bulk uh, volume. And um, those burners uh, burn the propane at a pretty high temperature. Using an infrared camera, I was able to measure that it can be anywhere from 450 all the way up to 600 degrees C, depending on the volume of the chili peppers in there, the environmental temperatures, and the rate at which you're flowing your propane. Now, to roast chili with a nice profile, meaning that once the chili peppers are roasted, you can peel them easily and it's not all charred onto the, what we call the flesh or the main um, part of the chili peppers that we typically consume. Um, it, it can be overdone. It can be over roasted and it could also leave a burnt or smoky profile. Now, the smoky profile, just like when you cook uh, meats, can be actually something that's desired. Um, but sometimes uh, you also need enough propane roasting in order to make sure you do sweat the chili peppers enough so you can peel it. Um, so that process takes a little bit of a not a little bit of skill and it's kind of an art in order to get the right profile right um but one of the things that always caught my attention was why can't we do a better way of being stewards to the earth by roasting chili in a more sustainable way instead of using again fossil energy propane uh, for roasting these chili peppers not only that but is there a way to make maybe chili roasting healthier. One of the challenges uh, in talking with some of my medical colleagues is sometimes uh, propane has unspent or unburnt fuel that can sometimes leave a res uh, residue on uh, food, when not just peppers, but anything else that's roasted with propane. And so, um, one of the thoughts we had uh, was, hey, let's get this chili roaster, put it on top of our large solar tower so we can look at the complete um, envelope of operational conditions so we can assess if roasting is possible with solar and at what temperatures and flux levels in terms of watts per meter squared or centimeter squared would need to be had in order to reach the same temperatures and roast profiles uh, that you would get with traditional propane roasting. So how did you replicate that sort of standard propane roasting using the National Solar Thermal Test Facility? Great question. So um, we use an inf we used multiple infrared cameras to uh, measure the temperatures. And then we also took, after we took the peppers out, we looked at what the roast profiles would need to be if we were to roast them on the solar tower. So when we put the roaster on the top of the solar tower, we instrument it with thermocouples and use the heliostats to bring these beams of light that are about one meter in diameter onto the chili drum roaster. Now, the drum roaster is a little bit bigger than three meters, and because the profile is a Gaussian, we had to do multiple aim point strategies. So we actually had multiple beams spread a little bit from each other onto this drum. And so this drum now has a pretty uniform distributed flux across it from the individual heliostats that were putting their beam, respective beams onto the drum. And then um, what we did was we measured the temperatures and we looked at the flux profiles like we and temperature profiles like we saw on the infrared cameras. Once we got 
pretty much the same flux, um, temperature profiles, I should say temperature profiles, then we knew that we were in a good position to start roasting. Now, the temperatures were a little bit higher because once you put chili in, um, it, the, the mass itself is going to absorb a lot of thermal energy. So we wanted to make sure that we had a little bit of margin uh, to compensate for that, uh, that volume. So next, we put in the chili peppers, we roasted it, looked through the infrared cameras, and we basically saw the exact same temperature profiles but there were subtle differences the profiles themselves where the burners were were effectively the same um, but the overall but that it wasn't just at the burners um, it was actually distributed better across the entire drum so it was actually faster to roast a chili in the drum because you had a more distributed thermal profile and um, the light spillage which is one of the challenges we have with concentrating solar power power actually was a benefit to us because again all that extra light got to spill into different parts of the drum and all the peppers in the bulk volume where before you had to rotate them in um, and now here they're all getting uh, evenly distributed heat there were still some that were in the center that needed to be rotated but for most part it was a lot uh, more evenly uh, heated so I assume you tasted the chili after you roasted it. I mean, how did it perform compared to traditionally roasted chili? That's the best part. So we actually got a lot of participants. We had no problem finding some taste testers and people that were interested in seeing how the peelability was, the texture, the smell, basically all the senses that are involved in eating chili peppers. And for New Mexicans, it's near and dear to the point where like you leave anywhere. People always ask, where did you get, are you able to find chili somewhere? <laughs> and so I, we did this blind taste test with a number of participants. They went through, they tasted the difference between propane versus uh, solar roasted. And then those other um, categories, like I mentioned, texture, peelability, smell. And overall, they preferred the taste um, and peelability and texture of the solar roasted chili over the uh, traditional propane roasted. They said it was a, had a cleaner taste to it. Um, and the, they and then in discussions they said, well, what would be the difference if you oven roasted it versus solar? And they said there was actually a different roast profile that you would have with solar roasted that's more similar to propane. But again, it has a cleaner. Uh, taste. And it's a roast profile that you wouldn't get uh, roast uh, cooking in the oven or roasting in the oven. So overall, it was very positive. The only uh, category that was very marginally better was the, the smell. They said that they like the smell of um, propane because uh, it smells a little more charred because that's what they're used to. Some people even said the same thing with taste where like they preferred the, the smoky burnt taste because that's what they're used to. But overall, most people said that it would be beneficial if they had the cleaner roasted chili. Okay, so great taste with, with less carbon. But of course, most people aren't going to have access to equipment like the National Solar Thermal Test Facility. And I guess also most, most chili growers won't have a son or, or grandson who works there. Are, are there any practical implications for this experiment? Or was it just kind of a fun thing to try on, on your, your day off kind of thing? Well, it certainly was fun, but there are practical ways of looking at it. So um, we are looking already at modular forms of concentrating solar thermal roasting uh, systems for not just chili roasting, but for roasting chocolate, 
coffee, uh, toasting, um, uh, toasting different grains for making like porter beers or, um, uh, stout beers. So there's a lot where we're realizing there's a huge plethora of applications for all of this. And so we are looking at modular forms that could comprise things like dish systems or trough systems, uh, which can be made modular and, and more effective at being able to be adopted by more people and used by more people since obviously no one has a solar tower. Um, but well, again, we were using the solar tower just to look at the efficacy envelope for roasting because we have such a dynamic range of fluxes that we could test and knowing how, uh, the different dynamic ranges could work. We could also identify which of the more modular type concentrating solar thermal systems would be most appropriate and work uh, the most efficient uh, for roasting chili peppers. All right. Sounds great. I look forward to seeing that. Ken Armijo, thanks you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Board games have enjoyed a remarkable resurgence over the past decade or so, perhaps because they provide a respite from our frenzied online lives. Board games can also have an educational element, and they've been used as teaching tools for a wide range of subjects. Indeed, three scientists connected to the UK's Diamond Light Source have created a board game inspired by research done at the National Synchrotron Centre and I'm very pleased to be speaking to them today. They are Mark Basham, who is a research fellow at Diamond, Claire Murray, who is a visiting scientist at Diamond, and Matthew Dunstan, who's a freelance game designer and former chemist at the University of Cambridge. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Hi. Hi. So, Mark, before we chat about the board game, can you briefly describe Diamond and what sort of research is done there? Yeah, of course. So, Diamond Light Source is, as you said, the UK's national synchrotron facility. And what that means is it's a particle accelerator, a little bit similar to CERN. But instead of at CERN where they collide particles together and look at the explosion, what we do at Diamond is we just spin the particles around very, very close to the speed of light. And we use that to generate very, very bright light. So it's one of the benefits of, uh, of particles like electrons traveling at near the speed of light is when you bend them around a corner, they generate this bright um, synchrotron radiation. Uh, which goes all the way from infrared all the way through ultraviolet up to x-rays. And in fact, the beam lines at Diamond that are positioned all the way around the synchrotron make use of all of those different types of light in different ways. And I think that's the key thing. So there are about 45 different experimental stations at Diamond, and they do all kinds of different science, all the way from looking at um, small molecules and looking at the structures of those and looking at the structures of proteins, all the way through to imaging things like dinosaur bones or engines, um, a whole variety of different science that can be done at the synchrotron. Yeah, it's amazing the, the the sort of breadth of work that goes on there. I mean, I think you, you even help out with archaeology, don't you, at, at Diamond? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been some interesting work looking at the structure of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, looking at fossils that are still embedded in rock and being able to sort of extract them sort of digitally uh, from the, the data that we collect. Yeah, a whole variety of different things. So, Mark, what, what inspired you to create a board game about Diamond? I'm guessing this sort of wide range of fascinating research must have been one of the things that made you think that uh, you could gamify 
um, the research and, uh, at Diamond? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually, it came through from a um, there was a talk that was given at the at the Synchrotron for anyone to turn up to, uh, which was all about different ways of doing public engagement. And they talked a lot about sort of more unique ways rather than potentially giving a talk or a presentation. Um, and they talked specifically about Southern Electric, who created a game for disseminating some of the information. Uh, and I thought, oh, that sounds like a really nice idea. And the synchrotron itself is a circular sort of building. It leads itself to be a board. And it was like, well, maybe this could work. And uh, so I started talking with a few people about it. And uh, that's when the, the team you're talking to today got together and started thinking about this in a little bit more depth. And Matt, uh, Mark's mentioned uh, the, the sort of ring structure of, uh, of Diamond and how it's, uh, I suppose, it can be reproduced on a board. Can you give a brief description of how the game is played? Sure. In the game, players take on the role as scientists who are going to do experiments at Diamond. And even the roles they take on reflect that broad range of science they've done. So they can be a, an archaeologist or a marine biologist or, or any number of roles. And there is a board in the center, as, as Mark said, with the synchrotron divided up into different spaces, which represent those different experimental stations, those different beam lines. Uh, on a player's turn, they just move to a new beam line and then they conduct an, an experiment there, uh, which involves flipping cards from, from an experiment deck, uh, which contains success cards, which are good because they let you, uh, they contribute towards you completing your experiments uh, and failures, which in and of themselves are not too bad. But if you get too many failures, then uh, your experiment uh, fails. You get to recover some of the success, but you but you lose some, uh, and then play moves on. And, and basically, in the game, players are trying to complete these different uh, experimental projects, which were in fact uh, taken directly from experiments that were done at the synchrotron uh, in their archives. And so, there, is is there a money element to it, like Monopoly? You're not competing for grants, uh, you know, grants from various funding agencies, that sort of thing. Or would that just spoil the fun? It's funny that you do mention that because there was some early discussion. I think Mark, especially, was very interested around the game around getting grants, or also with Diamond to actually uh, do an experiment as a as a scientist. So, in fact, I was in this position at the University of Cambridge. As an academic, I would apply for time to do an experiment at Diamond. And in fact, that process is also somewhat gamified. You have to have a, a proposal and you hope to, to rank highly to, to be able to do an experiment. But we thought that uh, for the sort of target audience of, of primary, secondary school students, this wasn't really what we wanted to highlight uh, in terms of the science. And so it's really focused uh, very much on uh, the sort of the breadth of science that we've done and also trying to highlight the many different contributions that are made, not just um, from, say, the scientists who are coming to do the experiments, uh, but also from the beamline scientists and also the various technical support staff at Diamond, because uh, Diamond has, you know, over a thousand employees, I believe, something like that. Uh, and they all contribute to that science that's done. So we kind of also wanted to highlight that. And Claire, Matt's mentioned that uh, the game is aimed uh, primarily at secondary school students. So in the UK, that's age 11 to 18. How did you ensure that um, the, the material uh, that you presented in the game was accessible to this age group, which would have a, a sort of a varied understanding of science? Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, the word you've used is really interesting. Um, and I think there's a lot that we can say in it because accessible itself, there's kind of two meanings here because you can think of accessibility in the context of how 
a random 11 to 18 year old could access the material, but you can also have a conversation about how accessible the material is to people from a diverse background and to people from, you know, who maybe, for example, have a disability or a different way of learning. And so I'm going to just first address the, the, the idea of, you know, a random 11 to 18 year old, well, but quite a big, broad age range, like you've just said. So one of the key things was to, first of all, think about the content that we were using and the language we were using to describe these different events, the different experiments that they would do, the different actions that they could take. And what we did is we intentionally kept that quite clear. Um, because actually that really supports a broad age range if the, the language is accessible um, and is quite easy to understand, but it also supports those who have diverse learning needs. And so this was something that was kind of a win-win to actually keep that very clear. Another thing to think about is the content of the game really matters in terms of the age range. So keeping the content focused on, for us, STEM careers and also the life of a scientist, those were the key things that we wanted to convey that actually meant that it was really accessible to a broad age range because anyone from 11 to 18 can explore different scientific careers. And this in fact actually came from conversations with careers advisors and also teachers. And they had highlighted that they found it very difficult to highlight a broad range of careers because quite often they get material focused on one specific career. And the careers advisors and teachers also said that they find it very hard to keep up to date with what's out there, what options are available, what these careers actually translate to in real life. So our game tried to connect some of these lines together and distill that information in a way that was fun um, and interesting. And kind of building on that, I I'm sure I think you're going to come back to this in a second, but testing was also completely fundamental um, and, and Matt can kind of explore that a bit further. But that was something that was critical to make sure it was, uh, you know, that everyone could kind of play that. Um, another thing to come back to then, like I said, with accessibility, you also have questions around, you know, are people even able to play the game? Are they able to engage with the content that you create? In thinking about some of these people who have different accessibility needs. We wanted to think about people who have color vision deficiency and also have a low level of visual impairment. So that meant that, that our content was actually designed and structured so they could engage with the game very easily and that they would be able to, to play and to pick up play very fast. We also tested the game with um, a school who have students who are uh, D-deaf and hard of hearing. And they also played the game and were able to access it. And a, an example of how we considered this was, for example, with um, D-Deaf students, they communicate using their hands. So games which require them to constantly hold up a card of hands is actually not a game they can engage with very well because they are, you know, they would normally do all of their banter and all of their communication through their hands. So with our game, there is really no need to hold any cards up. You look at a card occasionally and keep it secret, turned down, face down on the table. But there was no need for them to constantly keep these cards up and looking at them. So these were some of the, the decisions that we made in like a broader piece of work to actually make sure our game was accessible to more people. And Matt, uh, Claire mentioned testing, and I think you, you tested the game with the help of over 200 secondary school students. What did you learn from this exercise? Yes, we were very, well, very grateful and appreciative to have so many people uh, test the game, especially to the staff of those schools uh, that helped us do that. I mean, one thing that was actually quite interesting 
beyond getting the game to actually work, which is always a difficult thing in and of itself, was that we found that uh, the students' perceptions of science and what it's like to be a scientist and, and to do science actually changed somewhat. And, and one of the really interesting things that we didn't even expect was uh, around the perception of success and failure as a scientist. So in the game, there's a very direct, you put the, the player in a very direct point where they can fail an experiment. Uh, and that has a slight negative consequence for that player. But it doesn't mean that they're automatically going to lose the game. In fact, all the players at some point will probably fail an experiment. And so what we found is that this actually normalizes the idea of failure. And, and to be a scientist uh, is to perform experiments and that they will sometimes fail, that that is perfectly normal. And so we found that when gathering feedback from these students and, and looking at the kind of words that they use to describe how they would describe science before and after playing, we actually found the, the, this idea of failure uh, was you know, much more present, uh, but also talked about in a much, a much more sort of accepted way. And I think that broadens students' perceptions, not only of the types of science they can do, but also the very practical aspect of uh, what it is to do science and, and the kind of that emotional aspect um, in a lot of things, you know, it's kind of rarely discussed about what is it emotionally to be a scientist uh, and to do this work. Uh, and games have this this wonderful ability because they cast a player directly in that role. You're actually taking on that action. You you, you have a very, uh, you know, direct link to, to those emotions and you can experience some small amount of that, um, which we saw reflected in that feedback. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you know, particularly here in England where, where, uh, education is being increasingly driven by exams and, you know, exams that are done right at the end of, uh, of, of two years <laughs> in, in, in most cases that, you know, the idea of, of failing and trying again is, you know, almost anathema to the, to the current education system, which is a real, well, I think is a, just a, a recipe for disaster. So it sounds like you're, you're per perhaps letting, letting younger people know that it's okay to fail and it's it's part of the process really yeah i mean that's you know a deeper point that's the point of play of, of gaming play is this sort of safe space that you can ex try and try things out and it and it's a way that you're allowed to fail or to do something incorrectly or or to try something and uh, actually in, in broader society mostly we're taught not to play as we get older uh, but you know that it's such an important thing, uh, not only for children, I think also for adults to, to be able to play. And, and I think your point about board games becoming more popular over time, I, I hope it's uh, children, adults, adults alike realizing that importance. And, and Claire, if you're a teacher who who wants to uh, to play the game with their students, or I suppose just just somebody who's interested in Diamond and the science that's done there, how, how can you get hold of Diamond the game? Yeah, this is a really important question. So one of the things that we did during the pandemic was we acknowledged and recognized that people were stuck at home and we thought, hey, we have this game, maybe they could use it. So it's completely available online on the Diamond website. It's called the Diamond Print and Play. So you can print it at home using your home PC and you're able to cut out all the cards and play the game at home. So it's completely free and very easy to get. And, and just as a reminder that Mark, Claire, Matthew, and their colleagues who worked on this game are scientists. They've written a paper about Diamond the Game. And the paper is called Diamond the Game, a board game for secondary school students promoting scientific careers and experiences. 
The paper is published open access in the UCL Press Journal Research for All, and you can find it there online. And I'll put a link to the paper in the notes for this podcast. Mark, Claire, and Matt, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by GNBKL. Do check out their video series, Will It Bloat, at www.vacuumchamber.com. Thanks to Mark Basham, Claire Murray, Matthew Dunstan, Ken Armijo, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which looks at the legacy of the renowned Indian film director and polymath Sachajit Ray. Host Andrew Glester speaks to Ray's biographer Andrew Robinson and the biophysicist Momita Dasgupta about how science influenced Ray's work and how the director has inspired both scientists and filmmakers. You can find all the episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.